Secrets to Real Estate Investing, Episode 39. Welcome to the Secrets to Real Estate Investing podcast by House Flip Masters, where you will learn powerful strategies from top experts in real estate investing, and you will find valuable information to take your investments to the next level. Now, here's your host and expert real estate investor, Holly McCann. Well, hey there, and welcome to another exciting episode of Secrets to Real Estate Investing by House Flip Masters. We have a fascinating guest today by the name of Damian Lupo with us, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. What an accomplished gentleman this guy is. Amazing. He's an entrepreneur at heart. His first business was at age 11. Very impressive. He started 30 more since then, and he's even the founder of his own martial art. Yokido, if I'm saying that right. We'll have to tell us all about that. He's a holder of three other black belts, too. So this guy has some discipline. Damien paid for his first rental house with a Visa card, bought 150 houses in seven states over the next five years, and then went through a $20 million meltdown in 2008 which, by the way, was the year I got into this whole real estate game. So he was um, feeling the pain of the crisis. Today, he runs an Austin-based fintech dedicated to disrupting Wall Street by getting people off the Wall Street roller coaster and in control of their money and financial future. He's written five books with two more being released in 2017. And with that, welcome to the show, Damien. Hey, Holly. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. What a pleasure. I cannot wait to learn from you today. So why don't you tell us even more about your background than what, what I just shared with the audience and fill us in. Well, I, I, as, you, as you mentioned, I, I kind of got the bug when I was a kid back up in Alaska when I started buying and selling Nintendo games. And and it was really just the beginning of, of an entrepreneurial journey where I was finding a problem that needed to be solved. In that case, it happened to be my problem. I wanted to play games. My parents told me there's no money. So I said, well, you know what? I'm going to go create money because I don't believe that money doesn't grow on trees. I'm going to go figure out what tree to grow it on. And that was just my entrepreneurial mind. So started there and then kind of went down the, the normal path for a lot of people, went off to college and, and those type of things, for, which was really for other people. It was to satisfy their, their wants, their needs, and really their security. They wanted me to be safe and secure with credentials. And I went there and proceeded to get uh, invited to, to, to leave school when I started a bookstore in the dorm that was competing with the other bookstore and putting them out of business because I was undercutting them and the, the, uh, the uh, president of the university said, you can't do this. You're putting them out of business. You got to leave or you got to shut it down. And I said, I'm not shutting it down. I paid for school in a week and left. And really from there, it was, it was obvious that I needed to be on, on a path where I was creating things and starting businesses. And so that led to the real estate game, which started in New Year's Eve, 1999, and took me on quite a ride from zero not knowing anything to buying 150 plus houses, apartment complexes, uh, condo uh, buildings in, in Birmingham. I mean, I had stuff all over the place. And and then I went through that whole process of building a portfolio. As you mentioned, it was, it was about a $20 million portfolio that I created. So I thought it was pretty smart and and pretty accomplished. It's funny too, because a lot of folks that went through that, that real, the run up with real estate thought they were pretty smart until 2008 happened. And we, we that got crushed realized how we had really just ridden a, an amazing wave and the action helped us get there. But the lack of fundamentals 
kept us from staying there. And that's, that's really one of the biggest things that I learned what in this whole process that if you don't have fundamentals and now you, we've everything I do is based on values and it's, it's based on uh, a, a, a personal philosophy that didn't exist back then. It was, I want more houses. I want more real estate. I want more cash. And that was, that was the goal. I mean, that was it. And I think a lot of times when people do that, they don't realize that they're setting themselves up for disaster because when you have a, when you have challenges, you have problems, you have disasters. If you don't have something that's strong underneath you, you're going to get washed out to sea. And that's exactly what I had happen. And I think a lot of folks had happened right about the time you got started in 2008. Well, let me ask you this. I'm sure inquiring minds want to know what type of deals were you doing? Were you doing any flips or you were just building this giant portfolio? How did you acquire it? Was it other people's money or did you just snowball your own money? Or how did, tell us a little bit more about that. Cause I think our audience would love to know that. Yeah, Holly, that's it's a great question. And uh, what I bought into the the cash flow versus cash idea that that Robert Kiyosaki talks about a lot in his books and Rich Dad Poor Dad, which was one of the books that I I read first that got me my wheels turning in a pretty big way. And in my mind, my my thinking was I want to do a deal once and then get paid for it repeatedly forever. And so the idea of of flipping didn't really get a lot of traction. What I thought was it'd be really cool to be the bank to mm-hmm. to buy a property. So I bought houses, and when I bought them, I did. I didn't have a job, so I really couldn't qualify and I didn't have a lot of money. So I needed to figure out how I could get into these deals. So I had to use my creative juices and I was really going to a lot of seminars, learning how to do things like taking property over, buying things subject to, which for folks that don't know what that means, it just means that I took over a mortgage and I started making payments to the mortgage and, and then usually would give the owner some cash kind of to pay for their equity. And, and then I had, then I had a property that, uh, that had leverage on it, had the debt and, and then I would sell it on a lease option. So I became the bank. I mean, to, to me, if you can become the bank in some way and create that residual, it's a lot better than having 20 houses with tenants that are calling you. And that can't, that's not necessarily bad, but I like the idea of the bank model better. The bank goes home and they still get their money's making money. And that's, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make sure I was making money without having to take calls all the time. So that was my model. And I just kept doing that over and over until it evolved. And, and I realized, okay, there's, there's more deals and I need to figure out how to do those, which meant I got investors and partners and, and started borrowing money from the banks. And then, then the banks were giving money away for free. Yes. It just, so at that point, you just, you, you raised your hand and, and the bank said, sure, you want another million dollars? And you said, okay. And no yeah. idea what you're going to do with it, but that's what Do happened. you have a pulse? Okay, here's the money, right? Yeah, it was barely <laughs> a pulse. It was barely a pulse. You know, <laughs> right. And I heard stories about, yeah, so much fraud and stuff going on. And I'm not saying you were fraudulent. I'm just saying it was such an easy environment for people. It was to, rampant. To get loans and stuff. Yep. Okay, so then take us where a little bit through the crash, if you would, and how you felt and what was going on, and then what you did next. Yeah. So in, in two, there was a, a point in, I, I think it was in, in late 2006, where I had seven different projects that I was involved with. These were uh, rehabbing an apartment complex next to Graceland by, by Elvis's old house and flipping multi-million dollar houses in, in Maine. I had a condo development. I had all these things going on and my plan, and this is funny because man plans, God laughs and that, that whole thing. I had a plan that I, seven different deals were going to create a million dollars a piece and profit within about a year. And a year later, all seven of them were dead and they were oh upside down. God. And I was, I was dealing with, with lenders foreclosing. I was dealing with the whole thing. And, and what that showed me is that plans can be good. The, the, the big deal is, is who, when you're executing, when you're dealing with 
things that you can't see beyond the horizon. That's that, that's where you find out who you are. And it's, it's easy when everything's going up, but when things are, are crashing, you really do find out. One of the things I found out was I had signed on a lot of stuff, a lot of debt. So I was liable for many, many, many millions of dollars in debt. And when things went upside down, I started giving property back and giving cash back and, and just and doing what I could to unravel this whole thing. And ultimately, when that was finished and, and I, was, I was done, I wanted to pretend that I was still pretty smart and, and successful. And so I did what anybody, any rational person would do. I just pretended it didn't happen. I was kind of ignoring the truth. <laughs> and my process for going through that was, was really spending a couple of years ignoring it until I finally said, okay, wait a second, let's, let's figure out what, what really happened and, and let's, let's change me going into the next thing, whatever next, the next thing is. Because if, if we go through any type of pain or trauma and we don't fix something inside out, the, the reality is we're going to repeat it in some different form. And, and it was way too painful to go through that, which is also why I'm really, really careful about who I'm going to invest with or who I'm going to loan money to now. I want to make sure somebody's actually gone through some pain I'm not looking, and I'm really resistant to, to even being in business or, or dealing with people that haven't gone through some some type of wipeout or whether it's bankruptcy or just having made mistakes and lost money because you want to see if somebody's going to absolutely freak out on you. And yes. a track record in that is is helpful to know that they can at least survive it and, and be rational about it. So that it, it took several years for me to get to that point where I was asking those questions and and then figuring out what I wanted to do next and who I wanted to be next. And that was the big shift. Wow. Awesome. Uh, that just like brings to mind, even though my husband and I that got into fix and flipping in 2008, right before that we did a land deal in California and it was mostly him and it was like 2% me. Although the part I did was very critical. I found a hard money loan for four and a half million dollars on a raw piece of land, which was hard. And when we were making $45,000 a month payments on his salary and bonus, which wasn't nearly enough to cover that. And we were just on the edge of the cliff about to lose everything. Like you get real resourceful. And we had come to terms with the fact we said, well, we had lent money on this mobile home. We might move out of our 6,000 foot, 6,000 square foot, gorgeous, fancy home and go take our four kids and move into this mobile home park. It would be very humbling, but we had a bit like, this is what, we might have to do we might lose everything and we had made peace with that thankfully everything came through we made half the profit we thought we would but we still escaped in 2007 right before no it was 2006 we sold it right before the crash we sold um 73 single family home lots to a builder and they got left holding the bag but they did they did great because with the bank crisis they got out at 20 cents on the dollar they got their debt back but to come to terms with that and to make peace with you know, and to face reality, that is a hard thing. So thankfully, I didn't have to go through that and move into the mobile home. But oh my gosh, I, it's hard. I mean, you had a lot of stress on you and it severely molded you and changed you. So tell us what happened next and what you did then. Well, one of the things that I, I just thought about was what we can be, what we can make up that is normal. And by that, I mean that during, when this thing started melting down, I remember working with a friend of mine, looking at our financials. And one of the most important things anybody can do is be really clear about what's really, really true. And mm -hmm. numbers don't lie. So when you look at your bank statement, you can find a lot of truth in, in what's true for you and, and basically who you are by how you show up with your, your swiping practices. And I remember looking at my, my financials and, and going, huh, 
I'm spending $75,000 a month. How is this possible? It's like my overhead, my personal overhead with everything that I had going on and, and a couple of, uh, a couple of team members that I was supporting. And, and wait, 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 wait. I, was that debt service or was no. that like, and that was like a lifestyle? That, that was a lifestyle. It was, it, there were, I want to say there were probably three or four houses that I was supporting. So maybe that was, that was 20,000 of it for some of these rehabs. But a big chunk of that was just, was stuff that I had built up and it, including the Ferrari and, and the, the house and you know, all these things. And what's you were having funny, fun, weren't you? No, I was wow. having fun. Yeah, well, I was, I was trying to be something uh, that I saw in a movie, I think. And okay. I, one of the things I remember was looking at this going, you know, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to cut this. And I remember when I did, and I cut it down to about 25000 a month, and I thought, gosh, that is really living skinny. <laughs> and, and for most people listening, they're going, you literally had a net burn rate of 300 thousand dollars a year. So if, if, if it was somebody with a job, it would be a $500,000 a year, $600,000 a year salary. And that was my baseline. And I thought there's no way I can cut this further. So it was coming to terms with, with reality. And, and so you going to a mobile home park or, or me saying, okay, well, how many cars do I need? And, and really what, what, what's important here? It was just, it's a stupid place of, of irrational exuberance that this is my life and this is how I should maintain it. Uh, so I think Alan Greenspan was right with when he threw that term out. It was, I was definitely in irrational exuberance land. And, and when I had really slayed it and started over, it, it gave me a chance to reinvent myself, which is really what I talked about in, in Reinvented Life in, in one of my books. I talked about the process of, of rewiring inside mm -hmm. out going through the process of asking what's true. And, and then ultimately when I figured out what was, what was true inside, I could, I could adjust and shift and then rebuild something, rebuild myself, rebuild my business, rebuild my financial wealth and, and do it from a place that wasn't built on, on quicksand, but was built on fundamentals and, and things like values, which I can't imagine anybody doing business without knowing what their values are. And, I, and so often, people don't start there. I ask people all the time what their values are for their company and people that have 10, 20, 50, hundred employees and tens of millions in revenue. And they go, I never really got around to that. I go, how do you make your decisions? How do you know what you're going to do? What's your compass? I don't know. I just wing it and I go, holy cow, man, you're in, that is dangerous. So now that's a, that's a, a primary that, that I'm looking for with other people. And I'm always using to, to guide my decisions. Yeah, well, I would love to, I'm fascinated by so many questions I have here, and I, I wish we had like three hours to talk to you. You're so fascinating. Tell us what, uh, what you mean when you talk about the green and red arrows of wealth. What's that all about? Well, it's, it's funny because when I, when I was doing real estate, it was, it was, there was one arrow was straight up, everything was going up and, and there was lots of, lots of green and what I'm, that's a little different in real estate. You, you've got a, a different, uh, especially with cash flow and, and properties that you're running out, there's this consistency typically. So you just look at green and it, it's cash every month. Most people have their money sitting in 401ks in, in the stock market. So I had a conversation a while back with, with a, a gal that I'm, I'm working with and, and she said, I feel like every time I, I watch the news, I'm, I'm watching these arrows and they say today in the markets, the Dow did this or the S and P did this and there's a green arrow and it goes up. And, yeah. and she said, I feel like I'm a little wealthier and it's time to celebrate. <laughs> and at the same time, I'm a little, a little scared that tomorrow there's going to be a red arrow and I'm going to be poorer. And it, when there is a red arrow, I have this feeling like I've just, my wealth has shrunk. And, and she said, it's, it's like being on a roller coaster every day. And there's this, I wake up going, what's going to happen in the news today? And it's like bondage. It's wall street jail. And I said, 
so how long do you want to be in, in this jail? And she said, I want out. And I said, okay, great. So what do you want to do? And she said, I'm getting out. So literally the next day, they, they sold everything. And I remember when the election happened uh, and she didn't care. I remember when the when the markets crashed uh, in 2016, there was a, a pretty bit severe dip and we were talking and I said, hey, did you hear what happened in the markets? And she said, I have no idea what you're talking about. It didn't matter. <laughs> so she got off the roller coaster because the arrows didn't matter anymore. So what do you mean by get off the roller coaster? What else do people do with their money? What are you talking about? <laughs> well, the, 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 like the folks that are, that are listening here, they're listening and, and they're thinking about things like real estate. And, and really that one of the reasons that I love real estate, I love things like precious metals because you can control them and there's no roller coaster. There's, you're not on the wall street roller coaster, the ups and the downs and the lefts and the rights and the things you can't control, you can't influence. It's it, to me, there's, when you're talking about investing, you want to be actively involved. You don't want to just check out when you check out, you're subject to everybody else's stuff that you're, you're subject to the fees and the manipulations. And, and I, I happen to love things that you can actually influence things like real estate just makes my heart sing. Oh, me too. Yeah. We have no money left in the market. Um, my husband is a fan of gold. So I would love you to talk a little bit more about that. And when your book about the gold came in, he, he saw it, he's like, I can't wait till you're done with this. I can't wait to dive into this. He's a big fan of it. And he even, um, I want you to address this too. He's a believer even in physical gold. Do you, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, Holly, I, I think there's only one option for gold, for silver, and that is physical gold. If, if you talk to the, the average financial planner or financial advisor and you say, I'm interested in real estate or I'm interested in precious metals, very common, almost for sure, the response is going to be, yeah, okay, so let's find a nice ETF for some gold, which is paper gold, or they're going to say, oh, I've got a REIT I can suggest for you. And the problem is all those are paper. You don't control and you don't hold them. And you get feed to death, which is really good for the financial planners. They get their right. money every single month, every year. And mm -hmm. you may or may not actually have an asset. I know in, in, in the past when I was using some, some ETFs, which is an exchange traded fund for uh, precious metals, I was using a, it was a commodity fund. And I was using this because farmers and metals dealers and things use these to hedge. And I, I did that until the company went bankrupt because they were taking the money that people like me had in their fund. And this, this squirmy guy named John Corzine in New Jersey was using that money to trade European debt. And I found out how, uh, how much smoke was involved in these type of funds. So when we talk about gold and silver, I'm talking about physical in your hands, you, you are controlling it. It's, it's it, under nobody else's roof, but yours. And so I, the, to me, it doesn't make any sense to do the other stuff. You want to have, possession. I mean, that's, that's really the only way to, to own gold and silver, real gold, real silver in your hands. And, and there's just, there's a feeling of real money with you that has been real money forever. It can't be printed, can't be manipulated. Uh, so I'm a big fan. And it's real value. Are you, do you have any opinions also about, um, because there's an economist in San Diego named Robert Campbell. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's at one of the universities. I feel horrible. I don't know which one, but um, he's a professor there. And he's a big fan of even, I think, buying it in cash. So it's not traceable. So the government can't necessarily um, track you down and know that you buy it. Do you go that far to even buy it in cash? Or are you not concerned about um, the government knowing that you've got it? Because that's like in case they do the whole, what do you call that when they, when they pull it all in and then re, re, 
assess the value of it, restate the value. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I've talked about this. There's, there's a piece in my gold and silver book on confiscation that, yes. that happened back in the, the, the idea of confiscation. And it's actually used by a lot of gold and silver precious metals dealers to scare people into, uh, into buying. And I don't think people should, people should necessarily be that concerned about it. Could it happen? It, gold and silver is such a small part of the, the actual economic activity for them to, for the government to do that. See, back in the, in the early 20th century, gold was money. I mean, you're, it was used as money and people mm-hmm. traded it. Now it's, it's basically gold collectors or central banks are, are holding precious metals. So it's not really part of the national consciousness and, and we're, people aren't really doing it at all like they used to. So mm-hmm. I'm not typically very worried about that. It's also because of banking laws and, and the Patriot Act and currency transaction reports. If you go in and, and like, if somebody were to give me as a, a with one of my companies, if they were to hand me a hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars in cash and say, I want gold, I can sell it to them. And, and I would, but I'm going to get a bunch of documentation because when I drop that money off at the bank, the bank is going to file a report with the IRS and the, and the department of treasury. And they're going to look at me and they're going to say, are you doing anything illegal? And it's so, yeah. Can you do that in a hundred dollars, thousand dollar increments? Sure. But it's, to me, it's not really worth it. Once you buy something, from a dealer, the only ones that know that that, that has happened are really you and the dealer. So right. I, I guess if, if there's that big of a concern, um, maybe, maybe moving to New Zealand might be appropriate. Right. I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, that was a little bit of a tangent, but I just had to ask. So yep. thank you. All right. Well, getting back over to, um, to your expertise, um, why don't you talk about retirement, why you hate that word? What is it? Let's let's talk about your take on retirement. Well, and there, there's been this thing, this idea about retirement for for many many years, and people are are thinking, okay, how do how do I retire? I want to be retired. Here's what my life looks like when I'm retired. And if we think about what retirement has been traditionally, it was a time when you retired old equipment, you retired things <laughs> that were no longer useful or, or of service. You basically took the horse out into the field and you shot the horse or you, you threw the, you threw the equipment away. And, and so people have gotten into this mindset where they're excited about retirement. I'm thinking you're, you're excited about being done. And when I say done, it, the idea that when we're retired, we're going to stop working. There's two problems. One, we're, we're saying, okay, I'm going to start living then, which means we're, we're not necessarily living now, which I completely disagree with. And part of that is because when you're, and the big problem is that when you retire and you say you're done contributing, which is really a lot of what work is, you're done contributing, then the universe says, great then the universe is done with you, done, done supporting, you're taking up resources, which is why the average male in, in the United States dies in three years after retiring. So that idea is Ooh, kind of a death sentence. That just gave me chills. Oh it's, my gosh. It should. It's, it's <laughs> terrible. So and when we think about it, when we have this lifetime, these decades of, of learning and growing and beating our head in and expanding our, our wisdom, why would we stop when we're at the peak of that and not contribute, not teach, not do something? But we, we tend to think, okay, my life is going to be good down the road and I'll, I'll start living then. And I just fundamentally disagree that that's a good idea. It's saying that we're, we're done, we're going to check out. I've watched a lot of my friends that have, have hit their 50s and 60s and retired and I've watched their health decline. I've, I've watched them stop really contributing. The conversation shifts to their surgeries and their, and their health issues instead yes. of what they're doing and the exciting things. So it's, I think it's kind of depressing to even go into that space. So when I hear somebody talking about retirement, what makes sense to me is being s- smart financially and setting yourself up for, for financial freedom and financial security so that you're not concerned that you're going to run out of money before you 
run out of life. I think that that's smart. And that has everything to do with something like real estate where you can set yourself up. But to say you're going to start living down the road and not live at all, and then you're going to stop contributing, I think is a huge mistake. Yeah. So tell us more about um, your company and what you do and, and how you serve people today. The the company that, that I founded a year ago is called Total Control Financial. And it its purpose in in life, in the world, is to show people that they can get off the Wall Street roller coaster. It's to help them see that there's a tool. And that's what we, we set people up with. We set them up with the empowerment of, of a tool where they can take control of their, their money. It, they, they get their 401k money, their IRA money, and they're able to have it in a, in a checkbook to go invest in, in real estate, to invest in precious metals. And they're off the roller coaster. It's, it's a great tool for people that are self-responsible. And that is one of our six key values is self-responsibility. So it's a perfect tool. There's perfect alignment and, and it works well. It is a terrible idea for somebody to ever even think about this if they are in the blame game, if they are not responsible. Because when, when you do this, when you say, okay, I want off the roller coaster and I want control of my money, you have unbelievable opportunities to go out and invest and do things on your terms. Nobody else is holding your hand and saying, no, you can't do this. You should do this, whatever. It's all up to you. And and so we give people that opportunity and then we help guide them through the process of, of looking at things, looking at real estate deals, understanding precious metals, the alternative options for, for investing, which I think are the primaries. Uh, Wall Street would disagree, but I don't really care because I'm not that big of a fan. So I, I believe in people more than I do than, than the institution. I love it. So I, is this a self-directed type of account that you're talking about? Yeah, it, it is. You're, I mean, you you are literally self-directing your money. And so it's, um, we, we call it the QRP. It's the qualified re- retirement plan. And sometimes people have heard of things like self-directed IRAs, which I absolutely hate. And, and there's a reason why. Because <laughs> yeah, tell you, us why. Tell us I'm, why. I'm going to tell, tell you why. Oh, no, <laughs> so, <to> be concerned. <laughs> the self-directed IRA is, is a, it's kind of a, it's a junior high tool for when you're, you're moving through the process, you go from toddler being in, in on wall street, in wall street, stuck in wall street. And then Oftentimes there's, there's a pitch for a self-directed IRA because you have a checkbook. The problem is with an IRA, you still have a custodian, which means you're still going to have fees and, and you're still subject to, the, to somebody overseeing you. So if you like a nanny state, if you're into that kind of thing, then, then self-directed IRAs are great. I don't like the fees and I don't like somebody telling me what I can and can't do. I think I'm smart enough to do it. I think so are people that, that want to control their money. So for that reason, that's, that's a good enough reason to to have total control and not have somebody overseeing it. The other thing I like about it, in fact, I love it, is that it's 10 times better in terms of what you can contribute. So if you're, if you're doing some type of self-employment activity, you have a business, you, you have the ability to contribute over $50,000 a year to your self-directed, your QRP, whereas with an IRA, it's just over 5,000. So I, mean, I don't know about you, but over 20 years, I'm not real excited about having $100,000 that I've contributed to my IRA, but it kind of makes me happy to think about having a million plus contributed to my, my QRP and then being able to grow that on my terms with, with that control. So that there's, it's, a, it's a massive difference. And here's a kicker. If you're doing real estate, there's no way, way in the world you'd ever want to have an IRA because when you use leverage, which is a, ba- a big part of real estate, using leverage smartly you can do it inside of a QRP. You can, so basically you can buy property and take on debt and all the profits stay in the plan. If you do that with an IRA, if you buy property, you have debt and you, with your IRA, you're going to pay taxes now, even though it's inside an IRA. Why would you want to pay taxes inside a tax deferred vehicle? That would be, that's crazy. So there's, there's a reason why people are switching in, in droves from self-directed IRAs to the QRP because it's 10 times better 
and and then you're, and you're not getting feed 10 times as much like you are with the IRA. So I have a couple questions related to that. So I do know when you use leverage, you pay tax on the percentage of the profit that was due to leverage. So if you get a 50% loan, you're going to pay tax on 50% of the profit. And it's right. like that. I think it's UDFI and related debt financed income, something Correct. like that. Yep. I'm no longer an accountant, so I'm glad I don't know that. No, I shouldn't say I'm glad, but um, yeah, I left that world behind. But how does that work with the QRP? Can you do an unlimited amount of leverage and you don't pay any tax on that? that that's exactly right. There's, there, It's not subject to the UDFI. So if you go out and you, you buy a property for a million dollars and you have $10,000 that's your down payment and it's basically all debt and your million dollar property turns into two million, you just made a million dollars in profit. And all of that money stays in your plan. So it's, there, there is no tax on the debt. What's really cool is that that could be a Roth. Uh, it could oh, be it inside can. Of Roth. Yeah, that was so, going to be my next question. Can yeah. you go that way? And can you, follow on question, can you roll a self-directed IRA into one of these? So if there's people out there with self-directed IRAs, can they turn them into this or not? Yeah, it's, it's probably the smartest thing somebody can do is, is rolling over their self-directed IRAs, their 401ks, their 457s, basically any retirement vehicle you have, you can roll into your plan and, and you, can, you can utilize the Roth component, which is you pay the taxes now and you're never going to pay taxes on the gains or, the, or pulling it out ever. So you get to roll the money over tax-free, penalty-free, it's, it's in there. And then if you want to, which I love, you can, you can entertain the idea of never paying taxes again with the Roth component. Uh, there's, there's some stuff in, in my book on the QRP about, uh, about using the, the QRP to, uh, with the Roth piece with, with beneficiaries and, and as a, um, a family planning, family legacy type of vehicle where you can set your family up for the next 50 or 100 years and not pay tax. You just have to become a smart investor. That's a pretty good tax rate. I mean, zero taxes ever. It's kind <laughs> Love of awesome. that. Yeah. Oh, I get so excited about that. Yeah. And I've got some self-directed IRAs between me and my husband that are Roth. Love that. And then also we're doing the college education savings accounts for the kids. So got four kids. I've essentially paid for their college um, with flipping houses in there. I'm assuming there's nothing, I mean, the, probably the college education savings account is the only opportunity I have for college savings though, right? Uh, that, that could be, these, the rules are changing all the time and what you mm. have, I mean, it's, it's really hard. And, and I think this is a, it's a good point that comes up. You, we have to be really careful about the advice we're taking from people because the rules are so complex and it's so massive that an accountant isn't going to know about all the different things. Accountants are going to be kind of shallow and broad or very, very deep and narrow in their, in, in their expertise. I know about this, but I don't know about the, uh, the, the college planning tools. I don't know about most of those things and I'm not going to pretend to, I'll just tell you what I okay. know about. And I think it's really important for people to go and, and spend the time and energy and resources to get educated on whatever matters instead of just taking some random person's word for it. Do, do your research, do your, you know, get educated so that you can make an intelligent decision. And somebody asks you, why are you doing that? You go, I have no idea. You, you want to be able to say it's because of this. And, and I, I spent time doing due diligence. Right, right. Yeah. And my self-directed IRA custodian also handles those. So I thought, oh, maybe you have got something like that too. But no, I'm going to still need to keep, you know, keep a separate expert and custodian for that. So, well, this has been fascinating. And I probably should have you on the show again down the road because we could talk for hours. But um, I'm going to let you just say what you'd like to then because I could ask questions. But I want you to 
give your kind of your best advice for our real estate investors and real estate investor investigators, I'll call it, people that are thinking about getting into it. What's your best advice for them? I think the, the thing that I would tell people, and I, I often think, think about when I started and when I was early in, in my career, uh, when I was doing my investing, that the thing that I missed that got me into a lot of trouble, and I think it's really important for people to always keep in mind, is that there are people that have been there before you, that none of this stuff is new. It, it really is the same stuff. And it's, it's valuable to have gray hair or maybe in my case, no hair around you where, where you've got people that have, that have been there, they've got the emotional scars and not just somebody that has academic intelligence around investing or money, but and not somebody that just sells something because there's a lot of people out there that will talk about how they're, they're, they're financial experts or they work with money. And really it's a lot of BS because most of these people are just selling something. They're, they're not in there. I want to know what somebody's really doing and what they've really done. And I want those people to be on my team because this is definitely a team sport. Kiyosaki is 100% spot on that investing in, and business is a team sport and you want to have people that have been out there and done it that can see beyond the horizon and keep, you want to keep those people close to you so you, can, so you can ask for their advice and sometimes they'll give you their thoughts and, and ideas and you've got to be open to it. When I stopped listening to people when I was the smartest man in the room, I got into a lot of trouble because I really didn't know. I hadn't been through cycles. Now I've been through several. And you want people that have, that have been through stuff. And then it gives you the confidence and to, to move forward because really financial freedom is about confidence. It's not about a million dollars in the bank because you get a million dollars in the bank and you don't have confidence. You're going to be scared to death. You're going to lose it and never be able to cre recreate it. So it's not, you really want to figure out how do I develop the confidence? It's by doing stuff. It's by being active. If you're a passive investor and all your money and all your wealth is sitting in a 401k, what confidence do you have at age 55 that you can actually go do that again? The answer is zero. You're going to be scared to death. You go out and you do real estate, you understand the process and something happens, the market collapses and you go, oh shoot, that didn't work. All right. Well, you know what? I know how to do this. I can recreate it. That confidence is financial freedom. It is not a number in the bank. I used to think it was, but it's, it's the confidence and you get the confidence by going through things and developing the scar tissue and, and the deep wisdom and, and the belief in yourself. So that's what you want to go after and you can leverage off of other people and their wisdom and their experiences to start to develop that without feeling like you're going to blow your knees off in the process. I love it. That's great. So who are the right kind of people for you and your company to work with? Like who would be someone that you could help? Is it someone that already has to have a big old balance in a retirement plan or can it be someone that's just looking into that's starting real estate investing, starting to grow their wealth? Who's, who's someone that you can help? The, the perfect person for that, that we, we like to work with and that makes sense is someone that's aligned in aligned alignment with our, with our values. And those are the self-responsibility values. It's the 10 X thinking it's, it's not 10% returns. It's 10 times growth. It's wow. that type of philosophy. I mean, we're, if, you, if you're a fan of, of Grant Cardone or, or the big thinking Peter Diamandis, these type of people, you'd fit right in because that's what we're thinking about all the time. How do, how do we create massive value? How do we impact people? How do we, how do we grow things? And we don't really talk about conventional wisdom a lot. If we do, it's, it's in the negative. So that those are the type of people that fit in really well. And, and we, we love working with them. It's not about having a giant amount of money. It's, it's about having a giant amount of will and, and a big dream. And, and really with that, we can create things because it's, it's more about your mind. It's not about your checkbook that matters when you're, when you're creating wealth. I love it. What some great, great tips on mindset. Great, exciting. That just goes right in my, with my philosophy. I love that. 10x instead of 10%. Fantastic. All right. So if somebody is 
feeling so inclined to reach out to you and learn about how you could help them with their wealth strategy, what is the best way for them to do that? The best way is for, for, uh, for you guys to, to go to the totalcontrolfinancial.com website and I'll, I'll, put a, I'll put a link there for, for the listeners. And so if you go to totalcontrolfinancial.com forward slash Holly, I'll, I'll have a, a place where people can get a copy of the book and I'll send it out to them on, on the QRP. And that's really the best thing to do at this point is to get a copy of the book and, and see if it's a good fit for you. And you're going to have a lot of valuable information in there. And, and then you can reach out to me. I'm, I'm pretty easy on there. I'm, I'm going to be the, the first guy on the team page. And I love when people reach out and, and have questions and, and just want to have a conversation, especially when you're in the middle of this process of, of creating a different life or maybe reinventing yourself or just building wealth. Love to leverage off of what I've done in the past and, and be able to give that to people that are seriously wanting something more than what they have today. Fantastic. I love it. And your life experience makes you all the more qualified to be advising other people on this. This is fantastic. Well, listeners, also, I'm going to put all this contact info in the show notes. So reach out to Damien if you are feeling that you are ready ready for some big growth. I mean, that's what he's all about is growing your finances in a big way, not this 10% business, which most of you are listening and interested in real estate. I know because that's what you're out for. I mean, that's what I was out for when I got into this game too. So with that, um, here we, we're here to help you. We're here to guide you to increase your wealth and have a better life. And Damien certainly has achieved that for himself. A great person for you to reach out to, to make your own life better. So with that, thank you, Damien, for your time today and go out and make it a great day. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. If you found value in today's episode, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. You can find our show notes at our website, houseflipmasters.com on the podcast page. Also, to get our top tips for finding deals without spending lots of money, go to houseflipmasters.com for your free download today.